For as long as humans have been confronted with formidable animals, we've revered and celebrated them. We've depicted them in our oldest art forms and have generated scores of myths and legends about them in our history. For example, some Eurasian archaic societies built entire belief systems around the bears they encountered, a practice called arctolatry. Even in modern times, it seems to be next to impossible to observe nature's most impressive representatives and not be inspired by them. A consequence of that awe and inspiration is our age-old habit of assigning a colloquial name to certain individual animals. A name instantiates the creature in time and space and uniquely identifies it. A name accrues interest, stories, speculations, and a reputation. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, Colorado had Old Mose, a male grizzly bear so named for his habit of moseying across the landscape. Old Mose maintained celebrity status for two decades as he inspired awe and terror among the citizens in the region as well as their livestock. Old Mose was said to have smashed through fences built to contain a thousand-pound bull and then would dispatch the said bull with a single swipe of the paw and a bite to the neck. He had survived many attempts to trap him and many shots fired at him. Post-mortem, he was found to have had a slug lodged in his spine. Old Mose met his end in 1904. His skull measured 14 inches across and 15 inches long, making him the largest known bear to ever occur in Colorado. His hide measured 10 foot 4 inches long and 9 foot 6 inches wide. David Peterson, author of Ghost Grizzlies, aptly points out that this constitutes 100 square feet of bear. His reputation even earned him an obituary in the Denver Post along with the honorary title King of the Grizzlies. A more recent example can be found in M3, a wolverine that was studied by biologists with the Glacier Wolverine Project. Rick Ridgway refers to him in the foreword of the book The Wolverine Way as, quote, the biggest, snarliest, and most badass wolverine, end quote, that the biologists had ever encountered. In fact, that reputation earned him the nickname Mr. Badass. Among many activities that M3 engaged in, one of the most celebrated was his ascent of Mount Cleveland. At 10,466 feet, Cleveland is the highest peak in Glacier National Park. Monitoring him via a radio collar that uplinked his position every five minutes, the biologist watched slack-jawed in real time as M3 summited the peak, scaling the last 4,900 feet vertically in 90 minutes. Moreover, he managed this incredible feat during the height of winter. The team never reached a consensus regarding the Wolverine's imperative for the ascent. Wildlife biologist Douglas Chadwick stated, quote, We don't know why, but it's very cool, end quote. I'm Matt Pruitt of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy, and tonight you'll hear the first-hand testimonies of NAWAC members who've seen a formidable and recognizable wood ape in the valley we call Area X. This individual, or more dauntingly, individuals, has been given the name Old Gray. It's not only the largest individual that has been observed in the valley, but it's also the boldest. You're going to hear about the direct observations and encounters that our members have had with Old Gray, as well as a bit of insight that we've gained regarding its reputation in the region among people outside of our organization. Perhaps you'll be as enthralled with the tales about this ape as we are. Given its proclivity for confronting humans, perhaps we'll get to introduce the world to Old Gray as more than just testimony someday. This is the official podcast of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. This is Apes Among Us.
Welcome, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Apes Among Us. This is episode five, entitled Shades of Grey. Once again, I'm Matt Pruitt, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brandon Lentz. How are you doing there tonight, Brandon? I'm fantastic. Really looking forward to releasing this episode out into the public sphere. We've got a lot of incredible anecdotes and information here. I'm definitely excited to present these stories to our listeners. You know, there's no shortage of fantastic observations of these apes in Area X, but the observations of these particular large gray apes that are very intimidating and formidable, I think, really stick in your mind. And hopefully they'll do the same thing for our listeners. So I think they'll find them pretty compelling. You know, that we've been able to confirm the existence of these apes is incredible enough. That several of our members have seen a great color variance in them is just icing on the cake. Prior to my joining the organization, that these apes could display a gray color wasn't even on my radar. I had no idea that there were a number of historical accounts of gray apes as well. People have been reporting them for decades. We've managed to find a spot where these gray apes exist and survive, and our own trusted members have seen them a handful of times. That's just mind-blowing to me. It's interesting to look back to the historical records and see that very often the apes that are described as gray or lighter into the near white color spectrum are typically described as the largest individuals. So we'll be speculating a bit in this episode about whether or not that coloration is the product of age and maturity, or whether or not that's just one of many individual color variations as well. But it's definitely reflected in our members' observations in the valley as well, that the individuals that are seen of that gray phase tend to be the largest, most intimidating ones. As you go through and listen to these interviews with the folks who have witnessed the gray apes, you'll notice the defining characteristic throughout is every one of these gray apes is confident enough to be able to stand there and stare down the witness for a few moments before they calmly walk off. There are a number of historical accounts of people who have seen these gray apes display the same kind of behavior. I'm not sure what that means about the gray color phase and that kind of dominant, confident behavior, but there is a connection there. The consistencies of that particular behavior are definitely worth thinking about and worth speculating on, especially if that gray coloration is the product of age and maturation, because that would also lead to the size that we're seeing. You know, the the older individuals achieve the greatest size, and there's a lot of consequences to that, one being that presenting oneself to humans in almost a confrontational manner usually results in the human tucking their proverbial tail between their legs and running the opposite direction as fast as they can. Unless, of course, you're a member of the NAWAC and you decided to chase these eight-foot-tall, massive, gray apes into the woods, which we'll be hearing about in these upcoming interviews. Certainly, and I'm sure that the efforts of the NAWAC and Area X constitute one of the only efforts in history where humans are not exhibiting that normative response of fleeing and are actively confronting and actively pursuing the apes, at least in this particular scenario during our summer operations. As I was doing my research for this episode, I came across a historical account that John Green investigated. It was in 1956 on the Trans-Canada Highway near a city called Flood on the Lower Fraser River, south of a town called Yale. A gentleman was driving down the highway late at night with nobody else around at the time when he spotted a bipedal gray figure standing in the middle of the road. The witness actually had to slow his car way down in order to let the animal pass, which is interesting because there have been a lot of reports of similar behaviors by our own members who have had encounters with large gray wood apes. In this particular instance, when the witness drove by the gray ape, he saw another ape standing there in the ditch. That is an excellent historical account, and I think our listeners will hear eerily similar accounts from our own members displaying similar behaviors. You know, it's not outright confrontational because it's not like the ape is pursuing someone or actively trying to, you know, capture them, etc. But for an animal that's typically furtive and is typically very elusive, just to stand and be seen 
is fairly confrontational within the context of their greater behavioral repertoire or their typical behavioral repertoire. Right. And most of our encounters that we've had in Area X of these apes that don't display a gray color phase typically run for the hills when they know that they're about to be seen or they know they are being seen. So for all of these gray apes to slow down and actually make eye contact with some of our witnesses and investigators is really interesting. You know, in the canon of data related to wood apes, you know, the Bigfoot Sasquatch history, there are other cases of repeated observations of single recognizable individuals. I mean, one of the older famous instances that comes to mind would be Old Yellowtop, which was a wood ape with a lighter colored head that was seen multiple times in Ontario starting in about 1923. Uh, John Green ended up writing fairly extensively about that in a couple of his publications. But then you have other cases like the Lake Worth monster, the Flintville monster here in Tennessee, the Noxie monster, etc. I even got to interview a number of witnesses who had seen what we're fairly confident was the same individual wood ape in western Georgia in the summer of 2006 that made quite an impression on people. It was a single individual moving through an area that was at the periphery of human habitation and was fairly confrontational and aggressive and left quite an impression on the people who saw the thing. So it's certainly not unprecedented that you would have a wide number of individuals who are repeatedly seeing a single recognizable individual wood ape. And it even makes more sense in the context of Area X, where you have a concentration of people consistently in the same location year after year, actively pursuing these things and actively observing and trying to facilitate these kind of observations. To that effect, last year, during the first week of the summer operation, I was engaged in a discussion around the campfire there in Area X about the observations of Old Gray there and then other similar cases. So what you're about to hear was recorded last summer on site. So you're going to hear myself, Daryl Collier, Ken Helmer, and Joel Thomas live in Area X. <laughs> Okay, we are here for the Coffee Shop Roundtable discussion um, in AWAC Apes Among Us podcast. I'm here on site in Area X with Team Alpha, Operation Intrepid. We'll just go around from the left here to my left. Uh, let's just uh, introduce yourselves and let's just get right into it. I'm Ken Helmer from uh, Montgomery, Texas. Matt Pruitt from Nashville, Tennessee. Joel Thomas from Toto, Oklahoma. And I'm Daryl Collier from Lorena, Texas. We've had a great week here. Not had any hard visuals, but uh, we've had a few things that uh, were pretty exciting. A little bit of excitement today in camp. Joel, you've got some interesting uh, stories to tell about Old Gray, at least this big gray Sasquatch or wood ape. What, what have you heard? Yeah, that's right. I haven't uh, had the pleasure of, and the luck to have seen Old Gray yet, but uh, before I became a member of the NAWAC, I joined a hunting club that is very close to Area X, and when I joined that hunting club, I was drove around the hunting club to show, show me the land and, and places to hunt on there, and uh, the individual that was giving me a ride around, he was, we were talking about various things in the subject of uh, Bigfoot, uh, came up and he found out that I had an interest in the subject and so he started telling me about these various encounters and activity that has been reported on the with a big club. with a big gray ape huh yeah and and huh. there was uh one area he had told me he said if you go over in this area you need to make sure you're armed because there is a big 
gray Bigfoot over there that is very, very aggressive. And <laughs> well, what did he, why did he say? It was, why did he say it was aggressive? Well, he said uh, these logging trucks and these crews would go in there in this particular corner of the hunting club and would report it. They would come back to their vehicles and the windows would be broken out hmm. and had displayed aggressive behavior by standing there and looking huge and imposing. Oh, so they so they actually saw the thing. Yeah, on multiple occasions yeah. they would say they would see this and this particular individual said I will never go up into that area yeah. without a, a, a weapon because he was quite terrified of this hmm. gray Bigfoot. Yeah, well I think there's been problems, I'm going to guess, shoot I'm going to guess 8 to 10 of us have, have had encounters with this, with this, with, with a big gray ape and um, and Travis saw two big gray ones together, so there's probably more than one big gray one. Um, is it a color phase? Is it a sign of maturity? What do you think, Ken? I would guess it's probably a sign of maturity. Uh -huh. <clears throat> it seems that the gray one, at least I've never seen the gray one, but... Um, from the guys in our group who have, we haven't found him to be aggressive, but he's been bold. Yeah, right. That's a better he's, word for it. He's right? come very close. He's come into camp. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Mark McClurkin saw him on the edge of camp. Had a stare down with he him. Had a stare down with him, and things just turned around and walked away nonchalantly. Mm -hmm. To me, that's bold. Right. Um, he's walked in front of the vehicles on the way out yeah. recently. Yeah, and in fact, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. that's a bold because, maneuver. Yeah, we had a reconnaissance team in here yeah. just three weeks ago. That's right. And quote, unquote, Old Gray was seen by one of the team members on the way out. Um, and so that's very recent. That's uh, May of 2018. Uh, he's on his way out, and he's driving down the, the, the trail, the mountain trail, and about 30 feet in front of him, this big gray one just walks right across the trail in front of him. And he, he stops at the place where it crosses and he looks over into the tree, into the dense trees there and he could see this thing and it's, it had stopped and it turned and looked at him and then it just disappears off into the trees. Pretty creepy, creepy stuff there. Yeah, we also had uh, my experience uh, <clears throat> the one night when they reached in through the screen window and pushed me while sleeping. And Why do you think that was a gray one? Well, remember we found the big gray hair mm -hmm. in the windowsill. And so that's a bold move if it was old gray. Well, for any of them. Yeah. Um, but I think it's probably a mature one. Well, you know, and if you look at other primates, as they get older, they gray, right? Yeah. I mean, Gibbons, Gibbons have a color phase of, of gray. Sure. You know, given the history of this place right. and the history of observations and encounters, you know, in most cases, and speaking to Joel's, the information that Joel had received too, it seemed like this particular individual might have had a history of, you know, not necessarily being aggressive, but still to some degree confrontational and yeah. always, always winning, having basically a hundred percent success rate yeah. of, of making human intruders evacuate the area just by letting his presence be known visually. Yeah, yeah. So it seems like, you know, this thing has become, you know, a practitioner of showing itself in order to you know, intimidate humans into leaving of their own volition. And so you guys have been essentially the beneficiaries of that by being able to have so many observations of it as it's, you know, willingly approaching and showing itself to people. 
Well, Ken, what does that say about the ecosystem here? So suppose the theory that uh, 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 some of us have some of us have brought forward that I've proposed that that, that perhaps there's more than one, and, and Travis will tell you there is because he saw two big gray ones together. So if it is a sign of maturity, a sign of age, and we have a number of big old gray ones, what does that say about this 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 troop here? What does it say about this this place, this ecosystem? Well, obviously, it says that there's enough food supply here to, to sustain them. Yeah, they security. don't have to move around. Yeah, they're very secure here. I mean, I think we've seen just by color variations and sizes, well over ten different apes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's that says something in itself. You know, there's always a debate: do they, you know, how much do they move around? Do they migrate according to the weather, the seasons? And it seems to us like they don't. Yeah. They're, they're here to stay. Well, to me, it's, yeah, so if we've got several of these, oh, uh, you know, uh, uh, assuming that they're, that they're older individuals, to me, that means that this is, this is a core area. This is where they come to, they actually reside here, and they grow old here, and they die here. That's kind of what I would assume. If there's a group of them here, uh, that means they're secure enough here to live the entire duration of their lives here. Right, Matt? I would, you know, having spent the limited amount of time I've spent here, the ecosystem is incredibly rich. I mean, there's more food resources here uh, in this single valley than I think you'd find in, in many other parts of the country and many other places. Uh, it's incredible, man. Even if you just restricted it to flora, mm -hmm. let alone all the fauna, you know, if these things are generalized omnivores and they're eating plants and animal protein, insect protein as well. Uh, there's a great deal of food here. I think, you know, going back to this concept of, of old gray, whether it's one or two or potentially more animals, it's a fascinating thing because, you know, I'm pretty well versed in the history of, of Sasquatch research and, and the history of observation and encounters in places. And so very rarely do you have repeated sightings of single recognizable individuals and so people have always been fascinated by those particular stories yeah. but no field study like this has ever occurred in the entire history of the subject where you have uh, so many sets of, of observers in one particular location for such a long duration of time this many years in these summer operations so it's incredible that even within that subset of data you have so many repeated occurrences not only in the size and physical description and coloration of this individual but displaying the same behavior and then in joel's instance to find out that people you know Outside, not, not yeah. very far from here are seeing the same thing yeah. displaying the same behavior and so it's almost taken on this kind of uh status within the group of like this particular individual is is almost uh I don't want to say legendary because obviously to many the whole subject is, is yeah, the right. stuff of legend but it really has given him quite a status of allure mm -hmm. and uh, almost celebrity I would say yeah. at least for me I, yeah. that's the one I'm most interested in seeing because I'm the most compelled by those stories well a little bit of history of uh, the old gray visual encounters uh, by the NAWAC Travis Lawrence is the first one that actually uh, had a visual encounter with old gray um that was a reconnaissance in March of, uh, of 2012. Uh, Travis, at about a distance, of, as I recall, a distance of about 100 yards, 80 yards, saw a big gray wood ape. Um, that was the first encounter that we had with this, this quote-unquote big gray ape. 
the next one was uh, just a, a few months later. Um, me, I, in, in May of 2012, I saw a big, big gray ape. And I'm telling you, this thing looked just like the, uh, the, the figure in the Patterson-Gimlin film. It looked exactly like that, except it was gray from top to bottom. The buttocks had a white, um, a, a tinge of white, and then, then there was a, a really light color on the feet or the soles of the feet. Um, but it was, I mean, it was the color of a, you know, slate gray from top to bottom. And it, when I saw it, it had stepped up on a big rock and then up on the bank and it was gone. Um, the next encounter, as I recall, um, was again, Travis Lawrence. I think he saw two big gray ones. He could see the legs of these things, the, of them scissoring off together, walking away together. Mark McClurkin had a pretty close encounter with the, by now we're calling this thing Old Gray. Um, that's the name that I started giving it after my right after my sighting. I just I didn't have anything else to call it and just came up with Old Gray. And Mark McClurkin had a really um, seminal visual with uh, Old Gray in August of 2012. Um, he had just he had just arrived at camp and only been here about 10 minutes and uh, was unloading his truck. He had a headlamp on. He turned the headlamp on. Had a green lamp on. He turned around and there's Old Gray standing there at about 30 feet away. And it's just standing there looking at him, and Mark's looking at it. They stand there and look at each other for 1,001, 1,002, and then it turns around and walks off. And we've had a number of, of uh, visual encounters with a big gray one since then. It's, it's something that we're all fascinated with in the NAWAC, this ape that we call Old Gray. It just uh, it, it, A lot of us tend to think of Old Gray as uh, perhaps the alpha in the valley. Well, I'd love to ask you, since, you know, in this roundtable, you are uh, one of the only observers of Old Gray among us here. And you also had, you know, a daylight unobstructed yeah, view of it. Right. I'd love to hear you kind of describe the size of it, once, especially once you had compared it with a human subject in the same spot. I didn't really realize how truly large this thing was until my partner came back. Rick Hayes, and Rick's about 5'9", and I had Rick go stand on this rock where this thing had stepped up. At that point in time, it shook me to my core because it had to have been two and a half to three feet taller than Rick, twice his width. It was massive, it was huge. And I had a 4570 with me, and that's what I carry out here now. Um, but at that particular point in time, that was six years ago, that shook me pretty good. And I, you know, I was pretty adamant to Rick. We've got to go. Let's go. That's way behind me now. I don't. I have no no qualms whatsoever of going anywhere and hanging out anytime, any place. But uh, at that point in time, in 2012, that shook me pretty good. <laughs> well, I was fortunate enough to go with you on this particular team, this Alpha team, to mm -hmm. the location uh, where you saw that. So I got to look down and see the the rock that hit, had stepped up to and was sitting on the bank that then it further stepped to. And it was quite a distance. I mean, it would take a pretty massive animal with some you know, massive legs and a massive stride to be able to just walk that easily. So I was just very impressed being there and seeing that and trying to kind of picture that play out there for sure. Yeah, when Travis Lawrence stood in for O'Great, uh, we did a recreation of that. Travis is a big boy, he's 6'3". You know, he's about 250 pounds, and it made Travis look small. Sometimes I kid Travis. I have a nickname for him. Sometimes I call him Tiny. Well, in this particular instance, he did look tiny compared to Old Gray. What do you estimate Old Gray weighs? Well, you know, I, I reckon Old Gray is eight and a half, every bit of eight and a half feet tall. 
every bit. And it, it, it thing's got to weigh 800 to 1,000 pounds. Has to. It's pretty massive. It's massive. Huge. And again, I want to stress, it looked exactly like the figure in the Patterson-Gimlin film, except for the color. So that's my, I want to segue into something in saying that, because two days later, I sat in that exact same spot. Yeah. My frame of reference was the Patterson-Gimlin film. Your story of old gray, this big, thick Sasquatch. Yeah, right. Right? Big and thick. Think mm -hmm. of what Patty looks like. And two days later, I sat in the same spot, and up the creek, what did I see step out? A black humanoid figure that looked nothing like a big, giant Patterson-Gimlin ape. But this one was slender, right? And it was face on me, and it sidestepped. It came from behind a tree, sidestepped like one lateral big step mm -hmm. to the left, looked at me for a few seconds, and then another lateral step to the left, and it was behind a tree. Yeah. And then he stepped again to the right, and he looked straight at me, and then he stepped to the left. And the thing about that was, and the reason I paused, was it was, I use the term lanky, but it had a big V chest, and his shoulders were so wide that his arms hung straight down, and I could see foliage between his torso and his hips. Yeah. And his arms. And that's not what I was expecting to see. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that was a So if you're listening, you know, if you're a researcher or you're looking to see one, that Patterson-Gimlin one as a frame of reference necessarily isn't what you're going to see. And what I yeah. think I saw was a young a young male. Like an adolescent. Just, yeah, an adolescent yeah. who was just thin and just built, that mm -hmm. big V chest. And that goes back to what we are talking about, about, you know, is old gray gray because he's older? And is he bigger because he's more muscular or fatter? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, Daryl, since you've had a direct daylight observation of this for the listeners, you know, it's there are, you know, quote unquote, shades of gray. Uh, if you had to compare it to another shade of gray in the animal kingdom, what would you compare it to? Uh, gibbons, there's a there's a phase of gray uh, in gibbons that's very, very close. Uh, that same kind of color, just a slight, a slight gray, you know, just very much a gray from top to bottom. And, and, I, and this, the, the view I had of old gray was uh, totally a side view. It was completely its left side as it went across this creek. And I, I saw the silhouette of it. Uh, and it's, the, the way that I can best describe the shape of its head is like the old Rock'em Sock'em robots. And that's, and that's what it looked like. I don't remember the arms. I don't remember seeing the arms, but I remember, so I remember the shape of the head I remember the buttocks were huge, the legs were huge, and I remember seeing like a light color at the feet. That's it. So, um, yeah, and so we have seen other colors out here. I've seen black one, I saw old gray, I've seen a brownish, reddish brown. Ken, you saw the, the one we call blacky, the black one. Travis has seen uh, like a really, really reddish color, and I saw a blonde, sort of a blondish color. There have just been a number of different colors out here, you know, and it's that's really weird. I don't know how to account for that. Any, any, anybody have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it'd be really interesting. I mean, it would take a long time, you know, uh, 
really in-depth observational field study to figure out whether or not each of those colors is representative of a different individual or if you're seeing uh, the same smaller number of individuals go through various color phases whether that's seasonal or through phases that they go through in life as the aging process yeah, continues for these animals so sunlight also can can change the color there or, the, or the perception of the color of an animal depending on where the sun is and how much sunlight is directly hitting it when you see it that can change the color from your your perspective you know the, obviously the end goal of the NAWAC is to have these things officially recognized but that'd be one of the things that you know we would love to find out and that even if they were proven to exist tomorrow those are the kind of answers we probably won't know for years or for decades even mm -hmm. if the most qualified field biologists in the world focused on this getting answers like well are all these colors something that they transition through phases in life or seasonal or do they represent different individuals and it, those are questions we want to have answers but it all starts here and it all starts with this singular mission but uh you know it's a, a fascinating thing to document in the meantime and i'm incredibly compelled by the the observations that the nawc membership has had of these different individuals and it's especially the old gray stories i'm really fascinated by that mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think that's uh, that's going to do it for this roundtable discussion. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. For this next segment, you're going to hear the first-hand testimonies of people who've had sightings of these large gray wood apes in Area X that we collectively refer to as Old Gray. As of this recording, we've documented 17 sightings of Old Gray, but for the purposes of this episode, we're going to bring you the most compelling, direct, and a bit unnerving observations that have occurred. Please enjoy this series of interviews conducted by Brian Brown, Brandon Lentz, and myself. Our guest at this time is a member of the NAWAC, and he is also on the board of directors. Travis Lawrence, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, man, glad to be here. So you had the first visual of one of the great apes that anybody in the group had. Can you walk us through that story? Yeah, I would love to. It was, uh, it was, it was a really cool trip, just a little ad hoc trip during spring break of 2012, so March uh, of that year. And... Me and this guy named Brad McAndrews decided we were going to try something different on this trip. And we parked our truck uh, like three miles away from, from the cabin compound, and we hiked it down in without talking the whole way down. We were planning on just being totally quiet for about three days, just in the hopes of uh, catching one of the apes walking by uh, that had no idea we were in the compound. And so we walked down to the cabins, and it, it was, it was kind of like we were backpacking, but we slept in the cabin. You know, we didn't do any cooking outside. We did nothing but red lights at night. And uh, we were as quiet as we possibly could be. And for the next three days, we didn't see or hear anything. Not a single rock, though. Not a single wood knock. Ever heard or saw anything. And uh, about the time of the weekend rolled around on, uh, I don't know, I guess it was Friday or so, uh, some other guys came in and joined us. And literally within like 15 minutes of them showing up, we heard a wood knock. And uh, some of the other guys that came in were like Mark McClurkin and Alex Diaz. One of those days, I think it was on a Saturday, Alex and I decided we were going to go out. So I put a ghillie suit on and I got behind uh, the cabin. I told Alex to walk way down the road and he was going to walk about a half mile or so down the road and then turn to his south and head back kind of in my direction. 
And uh, we had actually heard like a, a wood knock right over in that direction. That's what precipitated this. So me and Alex were going to go over there and he was going to try to drive it towards me. He was going to try to scare it in my direction. And so I put a ghillie suit on and I went and sat in this spot for about 20 or 30 minutes. And then I radioed to Alex to go ahead and start walking down the road and then circle around and come back towards me and, and hopefully drive the ape to where I could see it. He did exactly that. And uh, one, during the process, when he was coming back, I saw a gray figure just about 100 yards away, which is, is a really long distance uh, in that area because the woods are so thick. But it was March, and that's like the most bare time in the woods. And so I saw this gray figure that I thought was Alex just kind of walking through the woods. I could see from about the knees to the top of the head, see almost the entire thing. And I could see the arm swinging and things like that. And I thought it was Alex. I remember I radioed Alex and I told him that I just saw him. He said, okay, well, he kept coming. Then I lost sight of it. And I was like, well, where did Alex go? And literally like 30 seconds later, I saw Alex. It's like, as soon as I saw Alex and I knew that was Alex, it's like my heart just fell out of my chest because I remember looking at Alex and he did have on a gray shirt. I knew he was wearing gray, but his, his shirt was like a dark gray. And the figure that I'd just seen was like a real light gray, like a cottontail or something like that, or even a little lighter than that, like most of the rocks are in Oklahoma, uh, in that part of the valley anyways, real light colored gray. And I saw Alex as, as he was walking almost the exact same path is where I just saw this creature. Alex, I remember he, he had on like a boonie hat and I could see the line of his boonie hat. And he was carrying a shotgun that he had leaned on his shoulder and had a stainless steel barrel. And I could see the sun shining off that stainless steel barrel on a shotgun. Also, it just add to the fact that Alex was like a shrimp compared to this thing. You know, Alex is like 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, He's not that tall of a guy anyways. And this thing was like a foot and a half taller than him. No question. And, and, a, and a good deal wider as well. And as soon as I saw Alex, like I said, I just, my heart just kind of fell out of my chest. And I was like, I just, I just saw an ape. And I didn't realize it until I saw Alex. And that happens so many times with so many of our visuals, especially whenever one of us sees one for the first time. You can almost guarantee that anytime somebody sees an ape for the first time, they're going to think it's a person that they saw because it just it looks like a person whenever you see it, you know, way off in the woods. And that's what you're used to thinking whenever you see something walking on two legs, you think it's one of your buddies. Uh, I would bet that, you know, at least half of our visuals were like that, where we saw one of these creatures and we didn't do anything because we thought it was one of our friends or we thought it was a person or something. And that's how this one was. It was kind of funny because Alex radioed me about that time and Alex was excited. He was like, Travis, you're not going to believe this. And I was like, well, you're not going to believe what I got, but you go ahead and you go first. And so Alex said, I found a track. And I was like, you what? He goes, I found a track. There's, there's this fresh track that I just found along this path that I'm walking. He, he was like, it was so fresh, there was like water still seeping into it. And I was like, well, you're not going to believe this, Alex. But I just saw the, the thing that made that track. So we kind of figured out, like I told him what had happened, that I saw this thing right before him, and I thought it was him. And uh, he went ahead and made his way towards where I was, and we got together. And we went back and told the other guys, and then all of us went out to that spot where the track was. We measured, it was 14 inches long. I remember uh, McClurkin got down on the ground, and he was looking at this track. He was looking at it from different angles of the sunlight and things like that. And he found that there were actually dermal ridges on the track. Like the track was, you know, just minutes old whenever, whenever he got out to it. And you could clearly see, you know, dermal ridges on this track. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much everything I remember about that, what happened that first time. 
So prior to having that visual, did you have any idea that Woodage could potentially display a gray color phase? I'm really glad you asked that because uh, whenever this, whenever I had this visual, part of the reason that I didn't think it was an ape was because it was gray and because I knew Alex was wearing gray. That's something that we try to be real careful of whenever we go out now. So we, we see what kind of clothes your buddies have on so that you know whether or not you're seeing one of them in that first split second whenever you see one. But I'd actually never heard of a visual of a gray ape. And that made me kind of nervous because this was actually my first visual of an ape, period. I'd never seen one before in my life. And uh, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I see a gray one. I'd never even heard of that before. Like, we've taken sighting reports of white apes before. I'd taken some. I remember taking one from Houston County, not too far from where I live. So I'd heard of white apes, but I'd never heard of a gray one. Certainly not something that's, that's common at all. Also, you kind of second guess yourself for a while, you know, like maybe maybe it's just the way my mind works. But the fact that there was no precedent uh, for seeing gray apes, as far as I was aware, uh, made me question whether or not I actually saw one, you know. And I, and I would think things like maybe that was Alex and maybe he moved around a little bit and he didn't tell me. And I don't know why I would think those things, but I was just sort of trying to talk myself out of it because it was gray. If it was brown or black or something, I would have had no question in my mind. Uh, but I would try to talk myself out of it in the coming months. And it was it was a huge relief, actually. That happened in March, I said. And our summer operation started a couple months later. During during like the first week of that operation, whenever it started, Daryl had a good, clear, full body visual of a large gray ape. And that's whenever we started calling it old gray because Daryl gave it that that moniker. That was a huge relief to me whenever Daryl saw one. Because it was it was just, you know, confirmation. Yeah, there is a big grape in there. Yeah, I did see it uh, because Daryl saw one. And then before we knew it, there was a rash of sightings of, uh, of this gray animal. And, you know, that eventually led to so many of us seeing it that we're recording this podcast about it. You know, you actually had another significant visual of gray apes that sort of reinforced your own notion in your own previous visuals that these gray apes even existed. Can you walk us through that one? Yeah, I had uh, I've had three total visuals of of gray apes, and uh, the second one was was you know talked about in the Bigfoot Show episode 39, which is called Down in the Valley of the Jolly Gray Wood Ape, I believe it's called. Uh, if you just Google the Bigfoot Show, find episode 39, you can listen to it. And I I'd rather not rehash that here. But my other one that has not been recorded uh, happened uh, a few years later. It actually happened on June 20th, 2013. And I was in the valley with Kathy Strain. Uh, listeners to this show probably know that name. Uh, so Kathy Strain and a guy named Phil Burroughs. We'd been in the valley. Me and Kathy had been in the valley three weeks. I think this was our third week there straight. Phil had come that week. And we were in a situation where, if I remember correctly, Phil had twisted his ankle earlier in the day. And so he didn't really feel like doing much. He just wanted to kind of sit around the cabin and uh, let his ankle get better. And so... I was antsy to get out and hunt and do stuff. So I, I, was, I was just like, I'm just going to walk up the mountain. So I just kind of departed and I left Phil and Kathy there in the cabin. And I walked up the mountain. 15 minutes later, Phil called me and said, hey, I think I, I feel like I could do a little bit. I just didn't want to hike very far. He said, I'm going to go sit down. And the, the, the position he described, uh, ironically, was like almost the exact same position of where I saw uh, the grave that I talked about just a minute ago. Uh, he sat down about 30 yards from where I was sitting, so almost in the exact same spot behind uh, the cabin. And I said, okay, Phil, well, I'm up on top of a mountain right now. I was like, I don't know, three-fourths of a mile from him, something like that. I said, I'm going to go ahead and drop down into the valley on the other side of the mountain. 
Then I'm going to swing away around. I'm going to walk up the road a ways, and then I'm going to do a drive towards you, and I'm going to come in from the south. That's not the exact same thing Alex did earlier. Alex came in from the west whenever he approached me. But I was going to just kind of make a full circle around and approach Phil from the south. I said, it'll take me about an hour or so to do that. And it did. I went ahead and uh, dropped down into the valley and circled way around to where I was uh, to the south of Phil. I was initially to the northeast of Phil, and I circled way around him. After I got there, I radioed Phil and told him, well, Phil, I think I'm directly south of you. I'm going to go ahead and uh, start driving towards you and, uh, you know, keep your eyes open. So I started walking straight towards Phil. And after I got about, I don't know, 100 yards in or so, Phil radioed me and Phil said, OK, I see you. And I said, OK. He said, keep keep walking uh, north and uh, and you'll, you'll get to me. So I did that, or at least I thought I was walking in the direction straight towards where Phil was. I walked another 50, 75 yards, something like that. And I got to where I thought Phil was going to be, and I couldn't see Phil. All this time we're communicating. Kathy is back at the cabin still, and Kathy has a radio, so she can hear everything that's going on. So I got to where I thought Phil was, and I looked around, and I couldn't see him. And I was like, well, maybe Phil's just camoed well enough that I can't see him. I don't know. So I got on the radio, and I said, Phil, where are you? Because he wasn't where I thought he was. As I said that, I heard movement off to my right. So my right would be uh, uh, east. I heard movement kind of off to my east, southeast, kind of in that direction. And I said, oh, there you are, Phil. And as I said that, I saw these these two gray legs kind of get up and, and scissor. I thought it was Phil because I thought he was getting up to come towards me. And I heard that movement. And I said, there you are, Phil. And I saw these two kind of gray legs through the foliage uh, just kind of run off to the south. And about the time the first one ran off, I saw another pair of gray legs kind of run off from the exact same spot. And as soon as that happened, I knew exactly what had happened. I knew that this was two wood apes. They were sitting over there. They were both gray. They'd gotten up and they'd, they'd run away. And for whatever reason, the way the foliage was right there, the bottom maybe four feet or so of foliage, maybe five feet, was kind of bare. And then starting at about four and a half, five feet up, it's when things started leafing out. And I couldn't see the top half of these apes at all. I could only see up to about their waist. But they got up and ran away. And so what happened was th- all, everything I just described happened in like two seconds. I said, Phil, where are you? And then I said, oh, there you are. Then I said, Phil, where are you? Like, And uh, I sounded kind of panicked because I got excited all of a sudden because I just saw these apes run off. And uh, Phil was like, I'm sitting right here, right here where I said I was. And I was like, I just saw two apes. Wherever you are, get up and walk over to the cabin. And he was he was sitting down like 40 yards from me. And I couldn't see him. As soon as he got up and started moving towards me, I could hear the foliage moving. And he got over to me and I, and I showed him where I just saw these two apes run off. And they were sitting down about 60 or 70 yards from Phil. I guess they were just watching him or something. And I inadvertently walked up on them. You know, I surprised them a little bit because they were only like 20 yards from me whenever they got up and ran off. Immediately, we, we pursued in the direction that those two apes ran off. And Phil and I went straight over there. Uh, there's a creek crossing not, not very far from there that I'd crossed actually to, to get to where Phil was. In the direction the, the apes ran off, we went in the direction of the creek, and I was looking all around the creek, all on the rocks around it, hoping to see wet footprints around there, something, some sign, some confirmation that I had just seen two apes. Uh, we didn't find anything like that. I don't, I don't really know how to cross the creek without uh, getting any wet footprints anywhere, but the creek's not that wide. Maybe they jumped across it or something. I don't know. But 
after I was satisfied that they were no longer in the area, that we weren't going to see them, Phil and I walked back to the spot where, where I saw him, and I got him to do a little reenactment. I put Phil back there exactly where they were, and I got him to walk in, in the direction that they went. And I could see up to, like, Phil's mid-chest where he was standing. So these things' legs were, were like, mid-chest level on Phil. Phil's, like, 6'2 or something. You know, he's a tall guy. And so I, I don't really know how tall these apes were, but I know their legs are, like, really long. They're, I mean, they were up at least to the bottom of Phil's chest where these legs were, and that's all I could see on them. Ever, ever since then, I've, I've considered that my best daytime visual. Sometimes whenever doubts creep in or something like that, where you, you sit down and you think, what am I even doing in this? You know, and, and you start to think about all the different visuals you've had through thermals and all the different sounds you've heard. And my, my brain starts to wonder sometimes, did I misinterpret that? Uh, was that really an ape that I saw that day? Sometimes those thoughts creep into my mind and I always come back to that visual right there. And I think of those legs scissoring as they walked away. And I think to myself, there's there's absolutely no way that was anything else. Whenever you see see giant legs that, that scissor like that, and you think there's there's no way that was a deer or anything like that. It, I mean, it was it was obviously a, a large creature on two legs. And I think back to that visual right there is my, my best daytime visual, 20, 25 yards away. Two of them, and, and there was two gray ones. That's actually our only visual, uh, as far as I'm aware, of anybody ever seeing two large gray ones together. You know, we often call the gray one old gray, uh, as if there's just one. But this was two, and they were about the same size. They were both really big, and they were right there together. They were both the exact same light gray color. I know that y'all are going to interview uh, Dr. Sarmiento somewhere on this podcast, and I'm interested to hear what he has to say about those color variations and things like that. Just in a little bit that I've looked up over the years, I found that sometimes there are two silverbacks in a gorilla troop. Uh, it's just something that has to do with age and maturity that over time, you know, their their backs turn gray. You know, we don't really know regarding these apes if they're male. We don't we don't know if it's a, a maturity thing, a size related thing, or if there could be small gray ones. We've never seen a small gray one, though. But um, there is a precedent, at least for that in graves, for having two, two gray ones in one group. Mark McClickran is with us today to talk about his encounters with Old Gray. How many times, Mark, have you seen uh, either this one gray animal or a gray animal in, in all your time in X? A uh, gray animal, just the one. This is the only time, only animal I've seen that was obviously gray. So why don't you, why don't you walk us through your encounter because it was pretty incredible. All right. Well, it started out actually on the drive-in. Um, we were probably a mile and a half or so from where we would camp. And we had the windows down on the truck. It was a nice evening. And we just got this horrifically strong, pungent smell of an ape. And it smelled like the gorilla pit at the zoo. It was, so I slammed on my brakes, put the truck in park, and got out with a flashlight to see if we could spot anything. As soon as I start to back up in the truck, we get a just terrible growl that comes out of the brush. You couldn't see anything with our lights. And you know, having my daughter in the car who was, yeah, I guess about 13 at the time, we figured this is not going to be a good situation. So Did she hear the growl from inside the truck? Camp. No, I don't think she heard it at that time. She okay. was kind of in her own little world, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah, I know. 13-year-olds. Yep. What did it sound like? Yep. Can you imitate it? Oh, it was just a deep guttural. 
Nice. <laughs> and, and what time of day was this when you were driving down? It was late. It was 11 or 12 at night. Okay. So it's and pitch so we black. We could never see anything. We just decided to go on to camp. Okay. And continually, we kept hearing something moving along beside us in the brush. And every now and then, we'd get a whiff of that smell. So you and think at just, this point, you're being, you're being shadowed as you're driving down the road into the, the area that we were in at that time? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, there's, there's not really any other explanation for it to follow us that far. Right. And so we get down to camp, and we decide to just drive around a little bit, uh, circle the area. And see if we can come up with any anything interesting. And as we loop back toward the camp to park, I hear another growl and movement off to my left. Hmm. So I stopped the truck and I got out and I can still smell the smell a little bit, but it's not nearly as strong as we had encountered earlier. I had my gun ready just in case, just a, a handgun. And we never saw anything. We could hear something moving in the brush, but it was too thick. And that late at night with a child with you, yeah. you just get in the truck and go. Right. So we get to camp. We're unpacking. Now, all I've got is my handgun, and we can hear something rustling around in the brush. And my first thought is, oh, it's the resident foxes. Because they'll come in every now and then when you park at camp, and they're looking for scraps or right. anything that else that they can find. And so I thought, great. My daughter's standing in the back of the truck, so I took my flashlight, and I use a green light because it's not as disruptive to wildlife. And so I thought, well, I'll just walk over, find the foxes, and then call her over to see them. <laughs> like a, and, a, little, a little show and tell for your daughter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, just kids love furry animals. Right. Well, <laughs> A little furry animals, anyway. Yeah. And so I walked maybe 60 feet from the truck. It wasn't far. And I shined a light down one of the paths, just a game trail and foot trail that has been used over the years. Mm -hmm. And when I raised my light up, there was a huge gray ape standing about half behind a tree looking right at us. How far away were you from it? Maybe 40 feet. It wasn't far at all. And it was just a second or two that it looked at us, and then it just turned and walked off. It wasn't even in a hurry. It's the weirdest fox anybody has and ever seen. That, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was close to eight feet tall. It was massive. I'd never seen anything like that at that point. That was just and even absolutely stunning. Even though you were using your green light, the perception you had was that it was it, the the color of the animal was was gray. Absolutely, it wasn't. You know, I, I've shined that green light on deer and other animals, and mm -hmm. and you can determine color just not well. And it was clearly not a dark brown or a black. It was a much lighter color. Okay. How much detail could you see? Well, after about the first three seconds, I got more detail than, than I did in the first few seconds trying to realize what the heck am I looking at. Yeah, right. Because it, there's a little bit of a, a panic moment. Mm -hmm. And as I'm watching it walk away, I can see the ridge of muscle down its back. I can see huge buttocks. It's just, honestly, it looked like Patty. It was kind of a tubular shape, wide hips. That's really all the detail I could get out of it. I'm sitting there thinking, all I have is a pistol, and that's not going to work against this thing. <laughs> so you think it was eight feet tall, what you were looking at? It was close. How? It was very close. How 
I'm asking you this because my experience has has taught me that they are just more massive than you than you're used to seeing an animal that's that tall. But if it's eight feet tall, how wide do you think it was? It was over three feet wide at the shoulders. It was absolutely massive. Right. Just a great big mass of a thing. Yes. And uh, it was like an upright elk or something like that. (laughs) So how long do you think the, the visual was from the moment you first laid eyes on it to when it had walked away from you and you couldn't see it anymore? I don't know, five or six seconds at most. Okay. That's actually based on, our, right. based on our data. That's a pretty long visual for the kinds of things that we see when we're down there. Yes, it is. And it just, it just walked away as casual as anything. Yeah, it was in no rush. That's really interesting. Did you did you get the perception that it was trying to be threatening, or what? What did you feel that the animal was trying to accomplish by just casually walking away like that? I don't know that it was trying to accomplish anything. I think it just decided that well, these aren't a threat, and just walked off. Hmm. It didn't seem bothered by us at all. What's interesting to me about this is we we have so many all the all the encounters well all the encounters that I've had, uh, with the exception of the one that I think was either this same gray animal or another one. Every other animal that I've seen in there, um, they're furtive. They move really really fast. They're trying to get away from you. Uh, they they don't seem to be in any way interested in any kind of of confrontation or they don't want to hang around. Right. Um, but this animal that you saw. And perhaps the one that, that I saw, if it was the same one, just seemed to be much calmer. I, I find that really interesting. Do you have any insight into you know, any speculation? Why do, you, why do you think this animal in particular was, was just not interested in, in, uh, in running like a jackrabbit? I'm not sure. I, every other one that I've seen has either bolted or didn't know I was looking at it at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as best I can tell, it just doesn't. Think of us as a threat for the most part. Huh. Well, to be honest, if I was eight feet tall and three and a half feet wide, I probably wouldn't think of you as a threat either. Probably pushing <laughs> yeah, 800 pounds. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so what did, what did you say to your daughter after, after this was over? I didn't say much at all, honestly, because she was pretty rattled. Okay. She knew we had seen the animals out there, and in her mind, she was she had already worked it up and was already uh-huh. afraid. Sure, right. So I just didn't want to push that any further. Okay. So I told Alex, hey, there's a huge gray one over there. It just walked off. Keep your eyes open. And at that point, that's when you start loading long guns. Yeah, right. Did you catch detail of its face at all? No, not really. It only looked at me for a couple of seconds and then turned and walked off. I assume it just was done looking. And did you say it was was partially behind a tree when you first saw it? It was. It had its left shoulder and I'd say maybe a fourth of its face behind the tree. Okay. So how many days were you there? This was literally, you just got out of your truck. You've just shown up. But how how much longer were you there and did anything else of, of note happen over the course of that time? We were there about two more days. Okay. And uh, that night, one of our other members showed up, brought his dogs. And after that, nothing really happened. But that mm-hmm. last morning, as we were going to leave, his dog woke him up. And mm-hmm. he stated several times that this dog never barks, never growls, nothing. And that dog was staring straight out the window down toward the trail and just 
constant low growl the whole time. Hmm. And eventually, when he, everyone got up and started moving, it settled down, and, and that was it. So that was really the only other activity that weekend. I mean, we had a good weekend. We got a lot of work done, but um, it started out a little weird. <laughs> I should say so. <laughs> All right. I, I appreciate the time. Sure. Thanks, Mark. All right. Thanks, Mark. All right. Our guest at this time is longtime NAWAC member Rob. Rob had a significant encounter with a large gray animal in Area X, and I'd like to get more details from him. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Oh, it's great to be here. So walk us through what happened that day. Well, you might remember you came in with Big Mac and uh, you guys had your visual. The next day after you guys came in, I just decided to walk over and get my thermal. Uh, well, to get the group's thermal. And uh, while I was doing that, I was like, yeah, let's just walk a little further down here. And I don't know what possessed me to do it, but I just... In the end, in the back of my head, I thought, I'm going to walk all the way over to that spot where those guys were, and it's about a mile. And so I was just pretty much walking quietly along the road, but, you know, not making a lot of noise, just taking my time and looking around. But mostly just I wanted to see if I could find any tracks in the road. As it got a little closer, it got a little quieter. I mean, it was it had to be a complete mistake on his part to let me get that close. Because I don't think I was more than 35, 40 feet away. That animal just exploded. And by that, I mean, he just, you know, it's like when you jump something in the woods and neither one of you are really expecting it. And it was just an explosion of sound. And this thing was in the trees. He was big. He was gray with brown. It was like a light grayish color with a little bit of brown in there, like a light brown. Couldn't see all of them, but he tore through the trees. There's all these little trees there on the corner. Knocked a bunch of them down, knocked them out of the way. Things were flying. You could hear the two steps. You know, you could hear the bipedal movement. And he just charged on through. And then he was gone. And it only lasted a second. It scared the hell out of me. I imagine so. You know, I kind of stopped. I kind of looked. I was really kind of all of a sudden I felt really... (laughs) outgunned because I just carried my pistol enough to rifle a camp just thinking, oh, I'm going to go get that thermal, which is around the corner, be right back. And uh, uh, and then I just did what I was taught to do all those years hunting. And it's kind of a silly little thing, but, you know, I took a look, but just act natural. My plan was just act natural and nonchalant like you didn't even see him. I walked probably another 15, 15 minutes, 20 minutes maybe. Then I looked at my watch and counted off 15 minutes, and uh, then I hunted. I came back down that road as absolutely quiet as you can come back, and I'm actually really pretty good at that. And that animal let me walk by it uh, right about the same area where I saw him in the first place and let go of a wood knock. It sounded like Shaquille O'Neal with a baseball bat unloading, you know, in a pissed off rage unloading on a tree. It's the loudest wood knock I've ever heard. And it was right on the road and pretty close behind me. And, uh, (laughs) 
that kind of shook me up a little bit. I was already a little shaken up because the animal let me get so close in the first place. And I realized when he bolted that first time, there was no way I could have got my gun out of the holster. There was no way I would have been able to protect myself against him. And uh, then he went ahead and unnerved me again by just letting me know I'm right here behind you. I've been watching the whole time. These are my woods. Of course, I didn't see anything. And then I just slowly came back towards camp. So you were able to tell that it was definitely a gray animal. Were you able to glean any other characteristics? Tall, domed head. Uh, didn't get a look at the face. Arms pretty long. You know, I'm not really sure. I, it was all just such a blur and such an explosion of movement. I wish I'd see, I wish he wasn't in the trees. Uh, but it was thick in that little spot. And, and what unnerved me, too, is just how fast he disappeared. Because there's some open room in that spot right there. And I didn't see him. You know, he, he just seemed to stop. Where the hell he went up that hill, I don't know. On the phone with us now is longtime NAWAC member Jerry Heston. Jerry, thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. So you had a pretty significant encounter with one of these gray animals, and I'd like for you to just set the scene and take us through the story. What happened that day? Well, basically, uh, it was late at night, probably around 10 o'clock, and uh, I decided I would drive up the road and check out another old road that nobody had looked at, and two guys wanted to go with me. Jumped in the Jeep, we took off, went up the road a ways and uh, broadcast from the top of a mountain, you know, vocalizations, and had no luck, so we proceeded on to this really, really steep, steep, rough, rough road. And I uh, got a lift kit and big tires, so it's just beating the heck out of us. And I said, guys, we got to find a smoother road. So up to the right, there was a sandy-looking road. And as I turned, I looked ahead, and there was this huge gray animal walking up the road towards us. And uh, just as I got in position to get a good look, it turned into some brush. And I yelled at the other guys that I'd seen something, probably, like I said, about 50 yards away. And uh, we zoomed up to this uh, hole in the uh, brush. It was a big, huge, round hole that had been used over and over by some big animal. And uh, Marvin Leeper had a thermal scope. He jumped in the uh, hole real quick and uh, got down in there to take a look. And I followed him. And as we went through this big, like four foot tall, huge hole in the brush, we went down about three feet down a pretty steep grade into this big open area that I can only describe as a bedding area. There wasn't anything laid down to lay on, but all the uh, the uh, small saplings had been torn off and carried off, I guess. But uh, Marvin started looking through his thermal uh, scope and he said, I see it, I see it, it's on all fours, it's moving up the mountain. And I said, let me see. So I grabbed it and I looked up the mountain and there was this tall, tall animal and it looked like it was trying to hide behind the tiny little saplings but it wouldn't have any luck you know I could see it clearly and it was on two legs so I handed the thermal back to uh, Marvin and uh, he said hey it's it's uh, walking up the hill get back on the road and see if you can see it so I climbed out of this bedding area and started walking up the hill with just a uh, lamp on my head looking into the brush and I went up about 20 feet and uh, all of a sudden I was face to face with this 
huge animal that had big green eyes, I would say bigger than a silver dollar, about six inches apart. I couldn't see the face clearly, but uh, we were eye to eye for about three seconds. And uh, then it just disappeared. And I'm guessing it probably just turned its head or squatted down. But uh, you have to remember, I'm five foot eight and it's three feet lower than me and we're eye to eye. So it was a big animal. We could come to no other conclusion than it had to be an ape. It wasn't it wasn't shaped like a bear at all. Well, that and black bears don't have a gray color phase. There aren't any large gray animals indigenous to that area, especially ones as tall as eight feet. Yeah, I mean, this thing, once I got to the opening, the hole in the brush, I realized that the animal's back had brushed against the top of the foliage, and the the hole was three and a half to four foot tall. So uh, this animal was three and a half to four foot tall on all fours at its hip. And the hip, once I got there and looked, put everything in proportion, his hip and thigh was as big as my torso. So that's a big animal. Wow. That story gave me goosebumps. I'm sitting here with the hair raised on my arms. Yeah, we were pretty shocked. I, I guess we won the lottery that night. But, uh, uh, you know, the more you play the lottery, the more, you know, chance you have to win. And we knew there was a big gray animal in the area. You know, that's interesting because that's in the same vicinity where Scott Carr, who we are speaking with next, had his sighting of one of the gray apes. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, think, well, these, these animals just come to uh, our cabin or the area. But I was probably seven miles away from the campfire the night I saw it. So this big old gray animal is moving all around. And then the uh, little old ladies that uh, live up the road, they're probably seven or eight miles away. So this big animal has a huge area to cover to find food and shelter. You had just mentioned those little old ladies, so I'd like to give a little more background on that story. On the way to our property in Area X, there is a cabin that's owned by some senior citizens, as you had mentioned. Through the grapevine, we heard some interesting anecdotes about what they had seen on their property. Can you shed a little light on that? Yes, we met a gentleman one afternoon coming into the research area. He was on a four-wheeler, and we got to talking, and I didn't really want to broach Bigfoot right away, so I said, have you seen any really big bears in there? And he said, yeah, there's bears everywhere, but there's uh, two uh, little old ladies that live up the mountain that claim there's a giant gray bear that's coming to their yard, you know, once or twice, and it, it pretty well shook them, but uh, he said they said it was a huge, huge gray bear. And we've also heard stories from people outside of the organization that have had encounters with a large gray ape in the same vicinity where we have. So members of our group are definitely not the only ones who have had run-ins with large gray apes. Yeah, yeah, I, I, you know, have gone back through the records and the documents and uh, the forum, and I'm surprised how many people have seen this gray animal. I keep replaying your sighting over and over in my head. I can't imagine the nerves of steel it would take to get out of your vehicle in the dark, in the middle of nowhere, going to thick brush, knowing that there is a large bipedal animal very close to you, and you just got out and chased after it. That's incredible. Yeah, I can't take all the bravery for that. Uh, I urged Marvin to get out first and go in there, and I waited 10 or 15 seconds, and I didn't hear him uh, being torn to pieces. This thing did not have any ears. It did not have a, a pointed head. It had a rounded head. Uh, it didn't have a tail. Uh, it had different, different colors of gray. It wasn't just all solid gray, and I could tell the hair length varied in length from maybe three to four inches to shorter, so... Uh, it didn't walk like it was scared or in a hurry like a bear would. It just walked in 
nonchalantly like, I don't care if you see me or not. Right. And that's a very good point in that with these encounters with these large gray apes, everyone has acted pretty similarly in that they're not in a hurry to get anywhere. They casually walk out, look at you, sort of assess the situation and calmly walk away. When they get scared, bears take off in a hurry. But this thing hung around to see what we were doing. It couldn't have been anything else. So, yeah, it was rewarding finally, like you said, after all these years for it to pay off. Our next guest had a significant encounter in Area X last summer. I'd like to welcome Scott Carr to the program. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Good morning. So, you are not an official member of the NAWAC. Nonetheless, you accepted an invitation from your cousin Paul Bowman to spend a weekend in Area X. Prior to going into the Valley, what was your opinion on the existence of wood apes? I've always been, what I would say, a true skeptic. I respected my cousin's opinions, but when I went in, I was probably 90, 95% skeptical. Like most people, I thought if we had really, they really existed, we would have some evidence by now. You know, I, I went, and it was more fun just spending time with my cousin, but I had to leave early. So I had packed my stuff and exited early on a Sunday morning. It had rained most of the night, and it was still quite foggy and raining lightly. As I climbed up out of the valley, the rain subsided some, but you could see, you could feel the clouds low and see them passing. You know, the wind was probably two to three, two to five miles an hour at the very most. Once I climbed up out of the valley and was up on top of the ridge, it was on a straight trail, a relatively straight trail. I could see approximately 60 yards total. The wind was blowing from my left, like I said, three to five miles an hour. So with the clouds being low and patchy, you could see them passing, but still have clear enough vision. You could see, you know, like I said, 60 yards at times down this trail. As I looked down this trail, the clouds were passing, like I said, left to right. I saw something large and dark moving right to left down the trail about 45 yards, 40 to 50 yards, I'd say. It just kind of really caught my attention. So as I traveled on down the trail to about where I thought I saw it, I looked to my left and into the woods, probably no more than 20 yards, probably more like 15 yards and moving fairly quickly. But I saw, as I looked to the left, probably a foot and a half, two foot in front of a tree, I saw something that appeared to be Sasquatch. It matched all the indications and the pictures and descriptions that I've been given since I was little. And But then it was, it was moving so quickly, it was behind the tree very, very quickly. And I just, I mean, it's just a very quick glimpse. When this thing crossed the road in front of you as you were leaving the valley, could you tell that it was bipedal? Oh, definitely. I mean, it was definitely walking upright, bipedal, bipedal mode. So Yeah. That'll definitely catch your attention. Yeah, and it was so large. I mean, it was it was so tall. That's what really 
caught my attention at first. I said, that is a, what in the world could be that big moving that way? But you were able to tell the color of the animal, correct? Yeah, it was kind of a charcoal, you know, dirty charcoal gray. Prior to entering the valley, did you have any preconceived notions or ideas that there may even be a gray wood ape in the area? Particular to color? No. I just, and I, like I said, I was still skeptical. I didn't, if I were to see one, I really would have probably anticipated thinking more of a reddish brown myself. But the color was a dark charcoal, so it's, it wasn't what I, I guess my preconceived notion would have been if I had any. How long did it take for it to sink in that you had very likely just had a visual of a large gray ape? I knew immediately I saw something. It was uh, definitely an experience. Esteban. Yeah. This is Brian calling from the NEWAC. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing well. Could you just give a, a, a brief introduction to yourself for our listeners who may not be familiar with uh, who you are and what you've done? Basically, I'm a primatologist. I did most of my work on great apes. I did my PhD thesis on orangutans, and I did about 20 years of work in Africa with chimpanzees, but mostly gorillas. I'm interested in the distribution uh, of the animals. What are the habitats that are um, good for their propagation, where they do well in, and what are the mm -hmm. habitats that aren't good? Mm -hmm. Even you know, even though they might look the same, some are good and some are bad for them, especially gorillas. Right. As far as Bigfoot, uh, when I was here in the States, people would send me evidence, either what they thought was hair or what they thought might be feces and photographs and also stories. And they took me, I guess at one point, they took me to see the imprint out in uh, Washington. The, the Skookum cast? That's right, in Washington yeah. State, the Skookum okay. cast, right. They took me out to see it, and I collected hairs from it and looked at the prints and tried to figure out if there's anything that we couldn't identify. Do you have people sending you things today, or are they leaving you alone now? <laughs> no, people still send me stuff. <laughs> right. Once we were on a film, we actually bumped into these uh, First uh, Nations people up mm -hmm. there in western Ontario, and they had recently had a Bigfoot sighting. So we went to the woods, the trails where they said they saw them, and we looked for the trails to see if we could find any evidence. Did you find anything? Uh, you know, we, we collected hair from the bushes and everything, oh, and okay. nothing turned out to be, you know, either it was something that, you know, was so denatured that we couldn't identify. Right. Or it was something that we knew what it was, like a right. bear, a moose, right. a wolf. Actually, hair is the reason I'm calling you tonight. We we have had a series of sightings over the course of many years. Uh, several several people in our group have seen large gray or gray appearing animals uh, that we believe to be wood apes, Bigfoot, uh, in in the area right. that we that we work in, and. I was wondering if you could give us um, a bit of a primer on how coloration works in primates, because of course there's gibbons and gibbons have different colors, but then there's also orangutans and they have an interesting range. Uh, gorillas, just like how how does color work when it comes to uh, great apes? Actually, great apes and lesser apes, um, gibbons as you notice, siamangs. Yeah. yeah, they basically show the colors of the hair that humans show. And I mean, you can sort of think of all the different colors. I think one of the ones is, is that sort of golden color that, you know, you can say we call blonde. Right. 
and there's white and you know and there's all those salt and pepper colors and and all those colors are sort of you know seen you think of a you know in in the great apes and you think of a like a redhead and that's what the orangutan is uh-huh when it comes to when it comes to chimps and gorillas they're all black uh-huh once they get older and this includes chimpanzees their hair turns to silver and sometimes they don't have to be that old, especially with chimpanzees, you know, a couple of years past adulthood, and they start to develop totally gray hair. Uh, we've seen animals that are very dark in color, uh, pr- practically black. Uh, we've seen reddish um, and sort of reddish brown. We've, we've also seen a few in, in that sort of yellowy blonde area. But then, again, trending towards uh, sort of, you know, the color of a jackrabbit, um, a gray animal. What's interesting to us, and, and and honestly, what puzzles me, is that when we see small ones, they're almost always dark. But when we see gray ones, they're almost always, like, really big. And so that seems to suggest that it's an age-related phenomenon, that they're, that they're as you're saying, they're, they're turning that sort of silvery color as they get older. Right. Usually gray, you know, white hair is associated with aging in, in all the... Um, great apes and humans and and you know this right i mean sure i'm having it happen to me right now <laughs> teenager and you were in high school there was few people with gray hair right right as you get older everybody around you has gray hair right right as far as as, as this is concerned though it 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 doesn't necessarily have to be at the same stages in the age that the hair turns gray like i guess even even within humans different um ethnic groups turn gray earlier or later mm-hmm. i mean you, you I, I think you, you see this um you know i mean if you compare say japanese to to europeans right if you compare you know africans to europeans you'll see that the onset of it is different right right so what you guys are describing to me when you said the young ones are all black or you never saw a gray infant right correct we've we've never seen a light colored small one right would suggest that it is age-related but when it happens, does it happen, you know, in their teenage years? Does it happen after, Later after on, right. you know, midlife or when does it happen? Right. And, and part of this would be that you're following an animal that's black and after six or seven years, he turns to gray and then you get an idea of when it's happening. Right. Right. And we don't know that we're encountering the same animal. We, as I said, we've had uh, multiple visuals of, of large gray animals, but it's hard for us to know. Uh, these visuals are often fleeting, so it's hard for us to know if we're seeing multiple gray animals or the same gray animal. Um, Another thing is if you see large black ones, then you know it's a, a variety. That means if you see right. very large black ones together with the gray ones, right. you can sort of say, well, it's not, not, in all, not all of them turn dark. Right. The hair. Some of them do and some of them don't. And this, is, this would be the, the case like in chimpanzees. Well, that's interesting. So chimps don't all go gray. No. Hmm. The old ones generally get gray, but some can become gray, silver even, at, at an earlier age. Interesting. My friend uh, lives in Kenya, and he has like a, a pet chimpanzee, which he got a female chimpanzee for. And she was young. You know, she was probably five or six years old in 95, so now she must be uh, yeah, almost 20s, 30. 30, yeah. Old, right? she's 30. Yeah. She'll be 30 years old. But she's been fully silver for probably 10 years old. Wow. Okay. Now, I was always under the impression that when we talked about a silverback gorilla, that it was the dominant male that developed the silverback. Is is that true, or am I... Am yeah, I... but all the animals will as they get older. Okay. 
the, the groups have like one male. Generally, that's that's the one that collected the group together. Okay. The younger ones are his offspring, so they're usually younger. And when they get older, they leave that group. Right. Or sometimes they stay. They stay in the group. So you never really see, you know, at least a small group with more than one, you know, silverback male. But once in a while, you have groups, where, you know, fourteen or fifteen animals, where there's two silverback males, and usually they're brothers. That you know, interesting. Went on with the group. Okay. Gorillas have a very patterned way of turning gray, sort of like we have a better, very patterned way of becoming bald. Right. Right. Western yes. males do. Right. It's right. Very. You know, it's in certain places, not in others. Right. Well, gorillas turn gray in the small of their back, huh. and that's where it starts. And at a certain age, they have a very distinct. You can almost see it's like you can see a saddle, a gray saddle. Right. Even though the rest of their hair isn't gray, it's just that area around the back, the lower back or the small of the back that that's gray. And sometimes as they get older, it comes gray down, down their thighs. But sometimes their arms still remain black. Right. So my perception that the dominant male is the one that turns gray is true because he's the one who's still around. That's uh, right. That, when but, they get older, that's right. They, they usually, if they have a group, they're dominant, but sometimes they're solitary males. Right. They're gray. Right. And we don't see those because, okay, that makes sense. You bump into them, but right. They, you don't see a whole group of them. So I have another question. Um, since I have a primatologist on the phone, uh, one of the things that I find interesting about the data that we've collected, the the visuals that we've had, is we often see animals in pairs, typically a large one and then a smaller one. And sometimes the large one is gray, but not always. And I have spent a lot of time trying to figure out analogs in, um, in other primate uh, sort of social structures as as a primatologist, what can you discern from the fact that we see them often in pairs? Is that is that normal? We know there's orangutans living in certain areas, especially Sumatra, are more social and they appear in larger groups. But the ones living in Borneo, presumably because they were probably heavily hunted, and probably not just by humans, but probably by other animals that eat them. Uh-huh. The males are solitary. And the females hang around with their offspring. So you never generally get a large group. You just get females and their offspring. Sometimes, usually, you know, it's a female with a baby and another large animal. And sometimes it's just a female and her offspring. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the other case, when you get three, it's, it's both of their offspring, but they're, you know, age differences. Now, what you're describing, if you see a pair of an older and a younger animal, my first suspicion would be that they are a male and uh, a female right. and her offspring. Okay. A female and her offspring. That's right. And that the males would be solitary. That would be an analogy that I would be making to orangutans. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Is it, is it not the case? This is my impression that, that the, the more sexual dimorphism you see in, in primates, um, the more sort of competition there, like physical competition they go through for, for the right or the, you know, the, to for mating. Um, and the less dimorphism you see, uh, the more sort of monogamous they are. Is that true? Uh, yeah, in, in most mammals. Okay. Large size differences are associated with phylogeny. Okay. So you have these enormous, you know, you have these enormous walruses. Sure, mammals, right. Right, you see? right. Same thing. And they have these enormous rookeries. Same uh-huh. with the ele- uh, uh, ele- you know, three elephants, right? Elephant seals. And with the, uh, you know, even with the sea lions, they have these enormous rookeries where it's one male with many, many females. Mm-hmm. And, and basically what that does, if you think about it, you only need one healthy male to inseminate lots of females. Mm-hmm. 
and you increase the carrying capacity of that environment. That means in a very short time, one male can make a lot of babies mm-hmm. without having to support lots of males. You see what I'm <laughs> right. saying? So usually yeah. that reflects like a harsher type of environment. In areas where everything was plentiful, you're most likely to get monogamous groups or polygamous groups mm-hmm. without a harem type of situation as exists, say, in seals or sea lions or in gorillas. Okay. And that was, I guess that was the part that I was confused by because we see them in these pairs. And so my assumption is, uh, unlike your assumption, I was imagining they were mated pairs, but then I didn't really understand the size differences because that didn't seem to jive with the idea that they were mated pairs. But it well, when you told me they were repaired, but there were size differences, my first, you know, that's just my, you know, yeah, right. what I would expect. I might not be right. Yeah, who knows? Because the truth is, you know, there's no stronger bond than the mother and the offspring. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of conversation around uh, how you would establish uh, an animal like uh, Bigfoot, like the wood ape. Uh, and some people think they can do it with a photograph. Some people think we can do it with videotape. Um, some people say DNA would be enough. I mean, you're a primatologist. What what do you think would establish the animal sufficiently to to get people to accept that it was real? Bigfoot is seen, or or things like it are seen in Australia. Correct. Yeah, the Yowie. Yeah. That's right, the Yowie. So is the Yowie and Bigfoot the same animal, or is it different? We'll, we'll never know that unless we have a specimen we can compare. And mm-hmm. even if we compare the DNA, and the DNA might look different, does this really mean that it's a different animal? Sometimes animals show much more differences, bigger differences physically, than what the DNA shows. And sometimes the DNA shows greater differences than what the physical differences are. Right. So there's not a really clear correspondence between the two, and especially when we get a sample that, you know, there isn't a, a direct, I mean, there is some correspondence, but it's not a direct, clear correspondence between the two that we can really say, well, with the DNA, mm-hmm. how different is the animal? Mm-hmm. We just can't do that. So ultimately, we would need, you know, a body. And most animals that we have that we recognize as being, you know, we have skins and skeletons in museums. Right. And sometimes we have collections, not just one. We have hundreds of them. Right, lots and in lots. museums around the world. Right. And that way, when we get a new animal, we can compare it and say, hey, wait a minute. This isn't like anything we've seen before. It's different. Even though maybe in the field, it looked the same. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, animals vary geographically from area to area. That means you don't get, you know, gorillas don't live in Asia or in, in Sumatra. Right? So if you got a gorilla there and it looked like a gorilla... You would, the first thing would come to mind, it can't be exactly like a gorilla, and you would take it and go back to the collection and compare it to gorillas that are there mm-hmm. and make the decision, is it really, you know, or maybe, maybe it was a zoo animal that got away. But this is, you know, <laughs> right. how, you can, <laughs> That's my favorite. how you could actually. It's always like a crash circus well, train. That, that explains a lot of things. Well, you know, in Malawi, in Malawi is, uh, you know, chimps don't really live far out of the equatorial zone. They live right. within within the equatorial zone and Malawi most of it is you know a little bit outside of where chimps range is but sure you know for for 10 years there was a chimp running around in Malawi and you know no one really could could explain what the hell it was doing there but I mean ultimately it was you know a runaway from a circus I mean he was hmm. having a good old time there he was doing okay he just didn't have females <laughs> he's all by himself but he was just an old, yeah, an old hermit male. Right. <laughs> but, so you're, you're saying ultimately we need to have some 
physical remains. Ultimately, yeah. Ultimately, you need to have physical remains. But it wouldn't be necessary to convince people. I mean, a good photograph that you know is consistent with the that's consistent with the uh, with the film subject and Patterson Gimlin, mm-hmm. to me would be you know would be really telling. Okay. Well, uh, Dr. Sarmiento, I, I do want to uh, thank you very much for taking time this evening and, and talking to me about this. You have a good night, and we'll hear from you soon, hopefully, right? All right. Yeah, well, uh, if we need anything else from you, we'll let you know. Thanks so much. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Well, that about wraps a bow on this episode of Apes Among Us. Before we depart, I want to leave with this final thought. Every hunter and naturalist dreams of seeing the biggest animal in their pursuit. That holds true within the NAWAC as well. Not all of us have been lucky enough to have an encounter with a large gray ape, but you can very well believe that those of us who haven't still think about it. The fact is, deep in the Wachita Mountains exists an extant species of a huge primate that has somehow survived and, up to this point, has evaded scientific recognition a primate so large that it can be considered megafauna. We know animals have been increasingly shrinking in size for centuries, mostly due to human encroachment and environmental conditions. The fact that creatures with such stature as the gray apes we've described in this episode have evaded recognition for so long is extraordinary. It also illustrates how at risk these animals are, and how important the conservation of large tracts of wilderness truly is. Without that crucial habitat, we would never had these stories to share, and our daydreams of seeing such a magnificent creature would never come to fruition. Please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you use for podcasts. It helps us out tremendously. If you have any thoughts, questions, or would like to become a member of the organization, please visit our website at woodape.org. Our next episode is entitled Citizen Scientists. The North American Wood Ape Conservancy is mostly naturalists who want to push the wheel of discovery. Citizen Scientist is about them. Stay tuned.
microphone yetis were harmed during the recording of this podcast.